0: A weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
1: How to eat better, get
0: healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
2: Sometimes I hear from people who listen to this podcast, and then I also get analytics from Google. And with all that information, I've come to see that you listening to this program could be anywhere in any country. You might be very young or having been around a while. You might belong to any of a number of religions or none at all. And you might be vegan or vegetarian or veg curious. But there is one thing that all of us have in common We are all living on planet Earth, and on this Earth Week, more than ever, that means a lot, and it is my pleasure today to bring you a very special Earth Week program with someone who is an expert and who has great commitment to the cause of saving this planet. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host, and it is my pleasure to welcome you today and to have on a guest that I have really wanted to get on the show since I first heard about him back in 2017. He is Gopal Patel of Bhumi Global, wonderful organization of which he is co-founder and director. That is a nonprofit that works to educate and mobilize Hindu communities globally for environmental action and he was part of the beautiful film. I hope you've seen it. Please watch it if you haven't. It's called A Prayer for Compassion and I was so taken with everything that he had to say and have come to know this remarkable person throughout these few years and it's really wonderful that today we have this whole luxurious hour to speak with Gopal D. Patel, a faith-based environmental activist, campaigner, and consultant for over 10 years working in India, East Africa, Europe, and North America. He currently serves as co-chair of the UN Multifaith Advisory Council. He is a member of the advisory board to the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And I must say that I am just tickled pink that he has also agreed to be an advisory board member for the Compassion Consortium, a spiritual community that has just started that i'm part of we're going to kick off this sunday and i'll make a little announcement about that after the break welcome gopal patel
1: thank you so much victoria it's an absolute pleasure to be with you and thank you for that very kind and generous introduction
2: Well, thank you for all the kind and generous things you have been doing for this planet and everybody on it for the past decade. So because we have the full hour, sometimes I have two guests and everybody gets one segment and we have to just the facts, ma'am. But when we have the luxury of the hour, I love to start with getting to know the guest. And today that's getting to know you. So what was your Childhood-like, how did you grow up and where and how did you get from there to a champion of the environment?
1: Well, that's a, that's a, it's a good question and I'm, I'm glad we have the full hour. I'll, but I'll try to keep the answer short so we can get into all the juicy stuff as well. But, um, you know, in a short way, um, I, was, I was born and raised in England. And I know that you have a special place for England in your heart. Um, I was I was born in Northern England in a town called Leeds. My parents um, were immigrants to England. My mother was born in India. My father was born... Actually, my father was born in East Africa in Kenya, grew up in Uganda, and came to London in the 1960s, just before um, the whole Idi Amin Asian exodus from, from East Africa. So I was born in Leeds, and then uh, for some reason, my parents settled in um, Northwest London, which is where I grew up, and um, had a pretty normal-ish um, childhood. Uh, my parents worked quite a lot, 364 days a year. They, they owned a convenience store. I grew up above, living above that in a two-bed apartment with my two other brothers and my parents. So it was a, it was a good childhood, um, but you know, with its struggles in, in, in various ways, um, you know, you know, experiencing you know, levels of racism to a certain extent, also just feeling um, isolated from my culture in many ways. Um, and that kind of led me to a path of um, searching to understand what was what were my roots spiritually, culturally, and it led me to um, a Hindu temple, which I think, I don't want to say by chance, I think it was divinely arranged in some way, but um, one of the largest Hindu temples in the UK was just a 10-minute drive from where we were growing up, where we were living at the time. And so I started going there around the age of uh, 16, 17 years old. And um, I happened upon a book called The, the Bhagavad Gita, which, which you may be familiar with, Victoria, and your listeners may. It. The, the, the Sanskrit is Bhagavad Gita. The English translation means the Song of God. Um, and then a long story short, I read that book, and I decided I wanted to become a monk. Um, at the age of 18, I said, okay, I'm going to give up everything and become a monk. Um, but I had to go to university first and get a degree. So I went to university, got a computer science degree, And then I went to India for a year and I lived a life as a monk or a trainee monk, lived in ashrams across India for about eight to nine months. Came back to England, um, went to university again to do a master's degree in humanities. And then did another year as a trainee monk in in that same Hindu temple, just near my parents' place. And lived about a year there in robes, shaved head, no possessions, um, very simple lifestyle. And then fast forward after that, I, I realized that that lifestyle was not for me for various reasons. And so I, I asked my friend who was the founder of the Center for Hindu Studies at Oxford University, um, I have a degree, I have this training as a Hindu monk, what do I do with my life? And he said, well, come and work for me. I'm starting an environmental program with Hindu groups and you can do that for six months and, and see what you wanna do after that. And so I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll do that. Oxford was a nice town. So I went to work for him for six months And six months turned into one year to two years, and now it's turned into 11 or 12 years, and so this is where I am today. So it really was not something I intentionally sought after working for the environment, but really something that fell in my lap in many ways. I'm very thankful for my teachers and my guides who have encouraged me on this path. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how I got to where I am now.
2: Wow, I love it. I think so often people's work for a better world leads them to a spiritual life and in your case the spiritual life led you to work for a better world. So it probably doesn't matter which comes first.
0: Right. <laughs>
2: it's uh it's good to get the, get them both in there. So
0: yeah. let's
2: talk um since since uh, you did give us this wonderful story about your uh having been a, a monk and that explain your faith to people who are completely unfamiliar?
1: Sure. Okay. Well, um, so I'm, a, I'm a practicing Hindu, uh, and in Hinduism, there are different, different, you could say there are different traditions or lineages, um, or in Sanskrit, they're known as sampradayas, which means schools of thought. So there are different schools of thought within Hinduism. And one thing they have all having, there are a number of things they have in common, such as certain philosophical values or beliefs, such as um, the practice of ahimsa or understanding of reincarnation. Um, but there are also significant theological differences between them as well um, in terms of what they believe is um, what happens after we die or what is the ultimate reality or what is the purpose of life. Um, so there is, like, if you had a matrix, you would see that there are some things that are very common across these different Hindu schools of thought, but also some stark differences as well. Um, you know, for example, I, I was recently speaking at a, a roundtable conference with the Vatican talking about faith perspectives on biodiversity. And I said to them that in Hinduism, you'll have a, a monotheist, a polytheist, an atheist. You'll have all different kinds of theists all claiming to be Hindus. It kind of took them a little bit by surprise because, um, obviously, in in other traditions you just have one kind of theism. Um, The the, the tradition of Hinduism that I practice specifically, it's called the Vaishnava school, Um, and that's one of the oldest schools of philosophy in Hinduism. It's practiced by people right across India, Um, and it it means essentially one who worships Vishnu, um, who is one of the primary avatars or incarnations of God. but then to break it down even further, I practice um, a school of Vaishnavism that comes out of West Bengal, and that is called Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Gaudiya meaning Bengali. So I, practice Vaish- I practice Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Bengali style of Vaishnavism. And essentially what that means is I worship and I understand that Krishna is, is considered to be the ultimate reality, um, the ultimate Godhead. And life is meant to be in service to him in service to his devotees, in service to the world, in order to build a loving relationship with him so that when we depart this world and we have fulfilled everything that we're supposed to, we can be reunited with him um, in, in some way or other. Um, so it's a, it's a journey of love, it's a journey of service, it's, it's a journey of compassion, um, and ultimately it's a journey of growth to understand who we are, who God is, and, and what our relationship is with him. So in, a, in again you know this is a this could be a very long treatise, but that in, a, in, a, in essence that that 's the school of Hinduism that, that I, I practice and belong to and i have been doing that now for about twenty years i would say
2: and you found this on your own this wasn 't what you got from your parents is that correct
1: yeah it's it 's true um, you know my parents you know, brought me up as a Hindu um but it was like I was saying in the earlier question um when I was 18, 16, 17, I went searching, and I visited a number of different Hindu communities and temples across the UK. Um, and it was this particular tradition that really spoke to me the, the loudest that I found to um, call me in, in many ways. So yes, it was, a, it was an intentional, um, I wouldn't say a conversion, but it was, a, it was intentional that I adopted this tradition because my family is from Gujarat, which is from um, the west of India. Um, and this tradition comes from the east of India. And traditionally speaking, people in the west would not follow the traditions of the east, and the people from the north would not follow the traditions of the south. Um, you generally follow the traditions of your, of your region and of your family. And so this was a significant departure um, and very much um, confused my parents and my family a lot when I adopted a form of Hinduism that they weren't very familiar with. But they've come to terms with it now, but there was some tension in the early days.
2: Yes, it's interesting what um, young people do. I I took a yoga teacher training last summer from uh, a group of uh, young Americans who are are in your tradition, and they were actually raised in that. Their parents were American, but had had discovered this tradition. And when they were teenagers, and at that time when a lot of kids rebel, they just said, we're going to go to a Buddhist university. (laughs) And then they eventually came back and and they're now practicing this kind of Hinduism. But I love it. Like, you know, that that's some real rebellion. (laughs) You're going to you're going to go to a Buddhist school. So I was watching a film the other day um, about Jesus. And at the very end, all of these scholars basically announced that the bulk of the evidence is that he never lived. Well, I've spent my life studying religions and I happen to believe whatever else anybody wants to think about who he was or what he did, he absolutely lived. But then this brings up the question also about Krishna. So tell us about historical evidence or how much of it is taken at a different level from a
1: historical figure. Wow, that's a that's a really good question. Um. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be very honest with you and say I haven't done much research into um, the hi- the history or like the, the historical facts around Krishna's existence, um, and I don't know actually how much research has been done in that. Um, maybe maybe there is a body of scholarship around that. Um, I would say that it's a little bit difficult because. Krishna is said to have lived on the earth around 5,000 years ago um, which is a quite a considerable period of time ago and since then India has seen um, conquest and invasion by two external forces first the Mughals and then followed by the British and so it's very difficult these days not just to understand um, Hindu history in India so not just Krishna's history in India. A lot of Hindu history in India because a lot of um artifacts and hist- historical um items were either taken away or misappropriated or just or just lost due to due to time and so um one, if one goes to India, one can visit the towns and the cities and the locations where it is said that Krishna lived um, He was considered to have been born or appeared in the town of Mathura, which is about three hours south of Delhi. Um, he was considered to have been born in a, in a jail and that jail is still there. Whether or not it's the original or replica, it, it's hard to know. Um, but he spent his youth, they say, in Mathura and the neighboring town of Vrindavan. And then when he was about um, 12 or 16, I, I can't remember exactly, he, he moved to a town or a city called Dwarka in Gujarat. Now actually, now that I think of it, there is some um, historical record of that because um, the city of Dwarka in the legend of Krishna, is considered to be a very opulent city. Multiple palaces and, you know, all the greatest things in the world that one could want. Um, and recent um, ar- archaeological surveys have found that off the coast of Gujarat, they have found something at the, at the bottom of the ocean which looks like a historic um, civilization. Um, and so that may be um, where Krishna lived when he lived in Dwarka. But like I said, I haven't done too much research into it and I don't know actually many people who have. I'm, I'm a little bit more focused on the on the theology of, of, of Krishna rather than the um, the historical kind of person of Krishna in, in, in that real sense. But it, it, you raise an important and interesting question and I think, I'm surprised I haven't thought about this before if I'm honest with you. Um, and I, I think I'm going to have to do a little bit of research now. So next time you have, if you have me next time on your show, I can I can share a bit more.
2: Wonderful. We look forward to that. So in terms of the theology of Krishna and what that does to your life right now today, how does it make you a different person than if you didn't have it?
1: I think for me, and I think what we really... Speaking to me in this moment about krishna's teachings and him as a personality is that he was he was about choice he was about giving people options and what i mean by that is in the main text this this text i mentioned earlier the bhagavad-gita um, the story in very short form is that um, his disciple and friend goes through a crisis and doesn't know what to do in this moment of crisis and the whole text of the gita is just Krishna telling his friend different things he could do and what the implications are of the different choices that he has. You know, he says, "If you want to do this, this will happen. If you want to do this, that will happen." And at the end of the Gita, which I think is really beautiful and which is what really attracts me to Krishna and really speaks to me in this moment of my life and what's going on in the world, is that Krishna says to his friend, "I've told you everything you need to know, but now you have to make the decision." for what you think is the best thing to do. And I just think that's so beautiful that here is God who has taken the form of a human, who is um, instructing his friend in a moment of crisis. And even in that moment, God is saying, you still have the free will. You have the choice to do what you want and I'll support you in that endeavor. And I just think that's very, very beautiful because I think a lot of people struggle with spirituality and faith because they find it to be dogmatic or they find it to be very prescriptive and here krishna is saying that actually you know what it's up to you, you know, i'm removed or detached from the decision that you're going to make and i think in the world right now where everyone's struggling and people are you know everyone's so fixed in a certain way of being and thinking and doing the fact that we always have options and here is krishna saying you always have options I think is really important. So I think for me, at this moment in my life, that's what's really speaking them clear, clear, clearly, most clearly to me. You know?
2: mm. So can you clear something up? You, you, you use the phrase, yes. God taking the form of a human. And my understanding is that the teaching is that each of us, and even non-human beings, are God taking the form of a human or a cow or a tree or whatever it is. So what's the difference when Krishna is here as God and the rest of us are here as
1: sort of God? So it, it's a good question. It depends on, that understanding depends on which uh, philosophical school one belongs to within Hinduism. So, um, so in, 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 the, in the Vaishnava school, um, which I said that I belong to, the understanding is that um, that we are, that individuals are um, one but different from God in the sense that there's a, there's a reality called God that um, the, the ultimate reality is, is a person, is the personality of Krishna or the personality of, of Vishnu and their form is, is, is spiritual. And um, and they when they come to the planet they take a form of a human so we can understand and, and relate to them. Now us um, as individual souls, the jivas in Sanskrit, have an intimate relationship with Krishna with Vishnu, um, but we are not Vishnu and we are not Krishna. There's a there's a there's a separation. And the analogy in the in the Vaishnava school is that it's like the sun and um, the sun particles or the sun rays in that the sun is existing and the sun particles or the sun rays exist but they are not the same. If, if, if a sun particle was to be in our studio right now, we would all burn to death but the sun can still be here by, by being here in its minute form. And so that's the the Vaishnava or the Gaudiya Vaishnava understanding of the relationship and the interplay between the individual souls and the personality of God, in that God exists, we exist, we are connected intimately, we are an expansion of God, but at the same time, we are separate. Um, And that separation um, is also not just in quantity, in the sense that we are like tiny particles of, of God, but also in, um, in quality as well. So there are certain qualities that God has in terms of his um, beauty or his power, his majesty, his level of renunciation from, from worldly things. And we have those things as well. We are also beautiful, we are also powerful, we are also uh, majestic in our own ways, but not to the same degree that God is in, in, in his totality. So that's the very specific, God, Vaishnava understanding that we are connected intimately, we are part of God, but that we are separate and have a separate identity, um, which exists, um, you know, for, for eternity. So that that that's where that difference comes in.
2: I see. And so, how does that bring us back to what we'll be focusing on a lot in the second half? Your environmental work. How how does this Earth, this presentation of the planet that we live on, the universe that exists, how, how important is the care of that from a spiritual point of view?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, it's hugely, hugely important because, as I said, um, everything is an individual being. Everyone is an individual being, and everybody has a personal and unique relationship with God. So whether that's us as Bob Palpatel and you as Victoria Moran, or whether it's um, your pet dog or, or the tree or the mountain or the river, we all we all have that individual personal relationship with God. And therefore, we have no right to interfere in anyone's existence and in anyone's loving relationship with God. And so that's why it's so important that we lead lives with that understanding that everyone is unique, everyone is independent, everyone is loved by God, and everybody has a right to life. And so that's how that plays out in that understanding that we have to respect all life because we just can't, we don't have the authorization to step on anybody else's existence.
2: Oh my goodness, how beautifully put. Um, we have a couple of minutes before the break. And what I'm going to do, because I want to ask you a big question and I don't want to okay. cut you off when that radio mm-hmm. clock says no more. <laughs> so I'm going to make right. my announcement about the Compassion Consortium now instead of when we come back from break. So yeah. the Compassion Consortium, which I have been told by some people I should be calling the Compassion Consortium, actually, I looked it up both ways past, is a wonderful new spiritual community for people who care about animals and the earth. So one of the things that's so cool about the CC is that if you are interested in faith, you're interested in spirituality, and you either left that behind or you never had it, welcome, here's a place for you. Or if you are deeply committed to your church, synagogue, temple, ashram, whatever it is, that is wonderful. And if you'd like to stop in at the Compassion Consortium as a kind of spiritual second home where you're Interest in your concerns about and your love for non human beings is celebrated, then we'd love to have you. So you can find out more at compassionconsortium.org and you can register uh, absolutely free, of course, for our very first Sunday service happening this weekend, April 25th at 4 p.m. And if you're listening to this show in the far off future, Will be the fourth Sunday of every month at 4 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. A full service celebration, wonderful special guest. Our first special guest is Bruce Friedrich uh, from the Good Food Institute. We're going to have a lot of fun. So join us at compassionconsortium.org. And you know what? It's time for us to go to break, and we'll be back with more with Gopal Patel and his amazing work with Bumi Global. Stay with us.
0: Throughout history, dreamers have opened the door for positive change that reshapes the world. Our dreams and stories can also attract individual prosperity and success. Join creative artists Valerie June, Aisha Ophelia, Jacqueline Suskin, and Sarah Walco for The Power of Radical Imagination, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Ignite your radical imagination and cultivate positive change. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive.
1: Practical Spirituality Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back
0: to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
2: everybody. Welcome back. I am here today with Gopal Patel. And if you'd like to find out more about his environmental work, you can check out the website, bhumi.global.org. That's B-H-U-M-I global.org. So Gopal, before we get directly into the environmental work, I want to ask you about uh, a term that comes from Hinduism that many, many Westerners, particularly vegetarians and vegans, know, and that term is ahimsa. Can you explain to us the deep meaning of that?
1: I can explain a meaning. I don't know how deep it will be. I'll leave that for you and your audience to decide. But um, from, a, from a Hindu perspective and my understanding is that um, if we take a step back uh, there's this understanding that, unfortunately, but by, but intentionally, the world is a place of, of harm, of suffering. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna calls it dukkalayam asashvitam. Dukkha, meaning this is a place of suffering. Um, and suffering, as we all know, comes from pain. Comes from people or the world inflicting things upon us that we do not want that makes us unhappy and so um it said that pain pain and suffering come from three places in the world let me see we we cause pain by um i think it's our mind our actions and from the world so those, those are the three sources of pain and suffering in the world and so with that understanding that Suffering and pain and, and hurt is, is built into the construct of, 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 of the world. Ahimsa is a teaching to say, minimize that as much as possible. Um, try your best to not hurt or harm yourself, other people, the planet, wildlife, creatures, and anything else that's living. Um, because you'll hurt them anyway regardless because that's just the nature of the world that just by going about one's day-to-day business will be causing hurt and pain regardless because that's just how things are constructed. So be aware of that and minimize it as much as possible. Um, and so that for me is the understanding of Ahimsa in the Hindu context. For example, if we move over to the Jain context, you know, and I'm not a Expert on Jainism, I don't mean to speak on behalf of their tradition, but my understanding is, in the Jain tradition, the understanding is that um, one should eliminate, and it, I think they say it's possible to eliminate violence and suffering. And you'll see the Jain monks covering their mouths. You know, you'll see them sweeping the road as they walk, and so on, like that. But my understanding is, in the Hindu context, is that um, it's not possible to eliminate all suffering. But it's certainly possible to eliminate a significant amount of suffering if we are conscious about the violence in our world and the violence that we cause to ourselves and to other forms of life, and that we actively try try to stop that. So that's that's how I understand and interpret that phrase of ahimsa. Ahimsa uh-huh. is that word himsa means harm, so ahimsa means no harm. So lead a life of no harm is essentially um, what it means.
2: Mm, I love that. And whether we could get rid of all of it or not, if everybody was trying to get rid of some of it, <laughs> everything would be so much better. So yes. what do they yes. say? You don't want the uh, perfection to get in the way of the good.
1: So right. let's yep. talk let's about mm-hmm.
2: what you do. So tell us first about Boomi Global.
1: Sure. Thank you. Well, it's, it's a good day. Um, tomorrow is Earth Day, as you know. So, Bhumi Global is we're kind of we're launching our website today on April twenty-first when this is going out. Um, so, Boomi Global actually is a relatively new nonprofit organization. We just registered last summer here in the U.S., but we actually build on the work of ten years when we were known as the Bumi Project. Um, and the Bumi Project was housed at the Center for Hindu Studies at Oxford University. Um, and the Bhumi Project did, and Bhumi Global will continue to um, engage, educate, and empower Hindu groups and leaders and communities across the world on three specific environmental issues, those being of climate change, biodiversity loss, and pollution. And we'll do that through um, research, we'll do that through advocacy, we'll do that through education and mobilizing people, and really bringing to bear what is a Hindu contribution, because we're very clear about that, What does Hinduism have to say about the environment? What unique perspectives can we bring from different Hindu traditions and understandings to help us understand and contribute to the solutions of these interconnected concerns of climate biodiversity and pollution? So broadly speaking, that's what we have done for the last 10 years as Bumi project, and it's what we'll continue to do as Bumi Global. We work across the world. We work across India, uh, Europe, and the United Kingdom. North America and we're also going to start looking to expand and work in other parts of the world where there are significant Hindu communities such as East Africa where we did we did some work in the past but want to do a bit more um, parts of the Pacific um, Australia um, and um, you know in and, and other parts of Africa as well so that's that's who we are um, I'm very fortunate to have co-founded Googleby Global with some very dear friends of mine we have a fantastic board and we're very, very excited about the work that we're looking to do and really seeing um, an uptake of faith-based environmental action and leadership coupled with the political will, which seems to be strengthening almost on a day-to-day basis to address the climate crisis. So um, I think we're in, a good, we're in a good place and a good time to really make, a, make an important contribution.
2: Oh, that's very, very hopeful. You mentioned something that I think people are not as familiar with as they are with the climate situation, and that is the loss of biodiversity. Can you talk about that a little?
1: Yeah, sure. No, you're totally right. And one reason is because biodiversity is um, not a very attractive word, to be honest with you. And one thing me and my colleagues at other organizations are like, how can we talk about this in a way that makes people want to understand it a bit more? (laughs) So essentially biodiversity loss is um, the loss of natural habitats, the loss of wildlife, um, the extinction of species. Um, So I think, for example, in the last last 50 years, 30% of all wildlife species have gone extinct, something something like that, something crazy like that. So biodiversity loss is the understanding that um, the Amazon rainforest is being cut down at record rates that um, animal species and wildlife are very extinct at record rates, that um, the oceans are acidifying increasingly, which is causing fish to die. And so all of this, all of the natural world is under threat through um, primarily human behavior, whether that's encroachment on land or whether that's through um, overuse of quote-unquote natural resources or whether it's humans killing animals unnecessarily, all of these things are what we call, call biodiversity loss. And they're important, it's important because the climate crisis is just one thing. And I think many people think about biodiversity loss, but think it's climate change. You know, So when we talk about animals dying, people may put that under the banner of climate change, but really it's a separate issue. It's connected, but it's separate at the same time. So that's why we're very intentional to say, The climate crisis is one crisis but the biodiversity crisis in many ways is is a larger crisis and it's harder to fix because the Mm. climate crisis we can we can fix we can fix climate primarily through um, finance through getting rid of fossil fuels switching over to renewable energy but biodiversity loss is a much much complicated um interconnected problem where there is no single solution or single solution, it requires a multitude of solutions to address the biodiversity crisis. And so I think in many ways, it, it, kind of, it, will be, it will be a bigger crisis in the future than just the climate crisis alone.
2: And what role do you believe animal agriculture plays in the climate crisis and, and the rest of it, too, if you see a connection?
1: Yeah, for sure. I I think, I think, I think it plays two roles. Like a like a day to day material role and then spiritual role. In the material role, we know, and you know, you know better than I, Victoria, and I'm sure your audience does as well. That animal agriculture is one of the leading uh, contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions. Um, animal agriculture contributes significantly to biodiversity loss, where we talk about the pollution of, you know, natural land. Um, the record um, cutting down of the Amazon is for animal agriculture. The trees are cut down for grazing or for cattle. Cattle then obviously killed and you know exported, and, and so on like that. So animal agriculture is a, a hugely um, is a huge culprit in the climate and biodiversity crisis because it just takes up so much energy and when it comes to water and other resources, it takes up so much land um, and it doesn't feed us well. The nutrition that we get from eating animals um, is very little compared to if we ate that same, the same food that was fed to those animals. If we were fed those grains directly, we would be much more nutritious and healthy, and there would be far, far fewer hungry people in the world. And so it's just a very, very unoffic- inefficient system of producing food in the world. So I think that's the material kind of, climate biodiversity aspect of the impact of animal agriculture but from a spiritual perspective i think and this is the argument that we often like to push as boomy global is that um and we use the cow as 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 a figurehead for this it's said in the hindu text that a society is how a society will treat the earth is reflected in how a society will treat the cow because in hindu um, legends the, the the cow is a physical representation of the earth and within a cow live many different goddesses and different energies and if a cow is mistreated it means the earth is mistreated and if animals are mistreated it definitely means the world is mistreated and so there's a spiritual lesson there that that's in all religious traditions which is that how do you protect the meek and the vulnerable Now, in some traditions and in some communities, that's only considered to extend towards other humans. How do we care for the poor people, the vulnerable? But in the Hindu understanding, who are the meek and the vulnerable? Who are the beings without a voice? And those are the animals, those are the trees, those are the plants and the rivers and the mountains. So if we can hear their cry, if we can hear their plea for us to not hurt them, to not destroy them, then we can make significant spiritual growth but at the same time address these crises of climate change and, and, and biodiversity as well. So these issues are, there's a, there's a parallel trap. there's the material aspect, but there's also the spiritual aspect as well.
2: That is fascinating and, and beautifully put. Well, since you did bring up a spiritual aspect, I think I am going to ask the question that I, I mentioned to you when we were corresponding earlier, <laughs> that it seems a little bit out there, but I'm going to ask it anyway let us just look at the hindu understanding of life where there is reincarnation where beings are evolving toward oneness with god what if we don't get these environmental issues solved what if heaven forbid humans manage to make this planet uninhabitable on a spiritual level, what would that mean, in your view?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's a little bit of an out there question, and I'll give a little bit of an out there answer, if <laughs> that's all right. Um, Touche. Essentially, again, different Hindu traditions will, will speak about this in different ways. So what I would say is not just the understanding from my tradition, but also, I think, from significant, from, from many other Hindu traditions, is that um, life exists on this planet in various forms, from humans to animals to cells, but life also exists on other planets as well, in various forms. And so um, it, it is not always the case that when a soul reincarnates, that it reincarnates on this planet Earth. A soul can reincarnate in, multi- in multiple different, um, in, in, in a multitude of other um, creations and levels of existence that pervade all of, all of the material realm and all of the spiritual realm. And so, um, in many ways, if life ceases to exist on this planet, there are an unlimited Number of other planets where life exists in other forms where those souls will, um, those, those, those souls can, can take rebirth and reincarnate. Um, and this understanding is based on um, the, the, kind of the broader understanding of, of creation within Hinduism. And not to get too much into it, but one, one particular creation story is that I mentioned Vishnu earlier position who takes a number of different forms um, and one of his forms is to create the world or the world and what he does is what it said is that he he, um, he lays down he lays them I mean, in a in an ocean of water and he breathes and as he breathes from every single pore of his body the universe emanates and in every single universe there are multiple multiple number of planets and those planets exist within those universes as he breathes out. And then as he breathes in, all those planets and universes enter back into his body. Now, when they enter back into his body, those the planets go into a process of destruction, but the souls go into uh, a period of being dormant. And then when he breathes out again, these, these universes are created again, and those souls reanimate and lead their lives. And then when he breathes in again, the universes destroy themselves and the souls go dormant again. And this is an internal thing. It's it's Vishnu breathing in and out just as you and I breathe in and out. But his breathing means that universes come into creation and universes get destroyed. And this is an eternal play that he does. And in that process, the souls go into periods of being active and go into periods of being dormant. And so from a a spiritual perspective, um, from a Hindu perspective, if this planet was unfortunately no longer existing in the way that we see it now, life will still continue and does still continue in other realms. And our souls will still continue to exist and have the opportunity for spiritual growth and development. And yet, was that far prob- enough? Out
2: probably not great karma if we destroyed a planet.
1: Yeah, no, that's not, that's not good on us if, if, if we destroyed the planet for sure.
2: Fascinating. So something else that you do, you do so many amazing things, Gopal. You are on the advisory board to the UN Decade of Ecosystem Restoration. What's happening? Are the ecosystems being
1: restored? (laughs) Well, thank you. So that's a a relatively new appointment that I have just in the last couple of weeks. And we haven't got started to work. We haven't um, really got to work on that at the moment in terms of the the advisory council which i sit on but that in essence that decade on ecosystem restoration is a is a joint effort by the u.n environment program and the food and agriculture organization the fao and so together they put together this decade which is in many ways a container um, because as we know over the next decade is very critical to address these issues of climate biodiversity and pollution and so your question are, are we restoring ecosystems? I don't think we are. In fact, I think we're going in the other direction. We're destroying ecosystems. But this container you know, project from the UN is to, is a, my understanding, is a way to help us think about, okay, how can we start restoring ecosystems in the context of climate, biodiversity, pollution, and other environmental issues? So the work hasn't... Really started yet on the decade from a from a UN project perspective. Um, the decade of ecosystem restoration is being launched um, on June fifth on World Environment Day, and so after that, we'll be seeing many more announcements and, and plans for what will go on over the next ten years for the decade. Um, but it's it's very exciting and it's very important. I think it's it's in, it's interesting that they asked me, um, you know, they as a, as a as a person of faith to be on the advisory board. For that decade, because I think the UN are increasingly recognizing and have done now for a number of years, the importance of, of faith and spirituality to address issues of the environment, but also a number of critical issues that the UN addresses.
2: Yes. And while we're still at the UN, you are also co-chair of their multi-faith advisory council. What does that group
1: do? Yeah, so that council is um it's appointed by the united nations uh, we are a 40-member body of religious. i would say not religious organizations per se but religious development organizations so the, the the branches of the different world traditions that work on the sustainable development goals um and so what we do um, that body is very um was put together for a very, very specific reason which is to advise offer strategic advice and support to the UN on the work that the UN does Um, because the UN wants to work with faith oftentimes struggles to know the best way to do that and so our body advises them and so a a very um, specific example that was that just took place a couple of weeks ago is around the COVID vaccinations Um, the World Health Organization and and UNICEF um, asked to meet with our Religious Advisors Council to um, think through how we can work together to get faith communities and leaders um, to adopt the vaccine because um, across the world in different religious traditions, you're seeing you know vaccine hesitancy for various reasons and the WHO and UNICEF were wondering well how can we work with the faith to put out a positive message for the vaccine rather than what's happening right now which is even no messaging or negative messaging. So that's just one very specific example of where the council comes into play and helps support the UN. And that's just one thing we also advise the UN on their work around you know, women empowerment, gender equality, the work around the environment, work on peace building and security, work on discrimination and hate crimes. You know, the UN works on, as you know, so many things and we get asked to offer advice and support as and when the UN feels it needs that to, to um, bolster their, their work working with the faith.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. I, I used to live in the area near the UN and knew a lot of people that worked there. And they were often so discouraged because the issues are so huge. And yet I would see them get up and they'd get their little briefcases and they'd walk to work. And it gave me so much hope that there is an organization that's trying to do such good in the world. So as yeah. we bring it back to the personal I'm fascinated by the spiritual life in whatever rendition or religion it happens to be cycled through. And I would love to hear from you, Gopal, just in our last few minutes. What's your spiritual life like? What's your day like? How do you live in this world as a person of faith today?
1: That's a very good question. I wish I knew the answer. (laughs) <laughs> I'll be honest. It's been a struggle. The pandemic has been a real struggle in many ways, materially and spiritually. Um, I think at this moment, with with all the stress of the pandemic and trying to get through work, my main, I have a I have a spiritual practice which I'm not doing as regularly as I should, which is to do regular meditation. You know, usually I I'm, I'm supposed to do about two hours a day of meditation. I'm not doing that, and I haven't for for a long time now. And I need to get back on that because, to me, that is the basis of of who I am and, and, and the work I do. So I, need to, I really need to get onto that. But I struggle like everybody else. And right now in the pandemic and um, my my spiritual practice, if I'm honest with you, is to make sure I stay connected to positive and uplifting people in my life and that I drown out uh, negative um, sound vibrations, as we say. So for example, I, I canceled all of my streaming services just two weeks ago, I was like, no more. I'm only gonna watch YouTube and I'm only gonna watch uplifting content on YouTube. I don't wanna be watching any kind of streaming stuff and getting my mood down. I only wanna be surrounded by people who have a spiritual view on the world and have a positive outlook and want to do good in the world because I need that um, because it's been so difficult in the pandemic to be cut off personally from so many people. So I'm having to readjust as I think so many of us are in the pandemic around what is that spiritual practice and how do we stay nourished? Because I think that's the key. It's, it, for me, it's less about what the practice is, but how do I stay nourished when I'm going through crisis or going through change? And for me, the nourishment comes from, as I said, surrounding myself primarily with good positive people as much as I can and, some, and surrounding myself with good vibrations, sound vibrations. So listening to kirtan, mantras as much as possible. At the moment, that's that's as much as I can do. It's not as much as I'd like to do, but I'm comfortable with it and it's getting me through each day. And so I'm very grateful for that.
2: Oh, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your honesty. I've also been having difficulty with meditation and I've been meditating for 30 years. It's not like some new thing I'm trying to <laughs> incorporate. But, but how interesting that you would mention during the pandemic, it's been really difficult. And in the course that I'm taking, I am required to meditate a minimum of 30 minutes a day, six days a week, or I won't pass. And I give myself wow. this really materialistic reason why I have to do it. You spent the money for the class. <laughs> so so sit down and do this thing that will nourish your soul, but I forget that it's to nourish my soul. So um thank you. Somebody should write a book on pandemic spirituality and get it getting it back. So bless yes. you. <laughs> so everybody, um it is um boomyglobal.org iGlobal.org we'll also put that in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net and if you want to come to Church for Animal People the fourth Sunday of every month 4pm US Eastern Time that is CompassionConsortium.org thanks so much to our guest Gopal Patel thanks to Unity Online Radio and thanks especially ever and always to you God bless you
0: Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world.
2: I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind, Body, Spirit, FM or wherever you get your podcasts.